Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Uh, today, it's my pleasure to have on the program Adrian Clark. Now, Adrian is the Vice President of Science with Freshwater Fisheries Society of British Columbia. Adrian, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about all things uh, Freshwater Fisheries Society of BC, and I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. But something I always like to do before we kind of kick things off is get a little bit of your history, kind of find out... Uh, you know, your background, where you're from, how you got into fishing, etc. Like, where did it all start for you, Adrian? Yeah, sure. I, I grew up on the South Island um, of Vancouver Island. I've always been uh, really interested in fishing. It, it was kind of my passion as a child. And then, you know, every chance I could get, my parents would drop me off at a local lake and I would um, fish for smallmouth bass or for rainbow trout and uh, taught myself how to fly fish. And then as I got older, I, my dad used to have a guiding business on the, on the south coast, and so I would drive uh, the boat for him. And, and then I got into commercial fishing until I was probably around 25, where I decided that I wanted to do something different. So I went back to university, and uh, I got my graduate degree in fisheries. So just out of curiosity, on a day-to-day basis, your job, um, as far as vice president of science, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, my main role is to, you know, I obviously lead the, the staff. Uh, we have um, a number of research staff that work on different uh, sort of research projects that will benefit the recreational fishery. So anything from strain evaluations to, you know, fish health problems like whirling disease, ensuring that the fish we're growing in our hatcheries are, are growing in the best way possible, uh, managing brood lakes, that type of stuff. Yeah, one of the other main parts of my job is to sort of work in partnership with um, universities, uh, other agencies, like other nonprofits, and then, um, you know, also deal with uh, with the government. Uh, we have our, our long service uh, contract with the provincial government. Actually, that, that might be a good place to start. Maybe we can talk a little bit then, Adrian, about Freshwater Fishery Society of BC. A little, just kind of give us a brief overview of your mandate and kind of what you guys are up to. Sure. Well, we're a private nonprofit. Uh, we were established in 2003. We used to be part of the provincial government, the Fish Culture Program, and we're we're now funded mainly by fishing license revenues. We get 100% of the license fees. Yeah, the society works in close partnership with government. We have our contract, and our, main, our mandate is to conserve and enhance the freshwater fisheries resource for the benefit of the public. Now, I know without you guys, I mean, you guys are stocking, what, over 800 lakes in the province every year? Yeah, we stock about 800 lakes, and... They, um, they're responsible for attracting about 50% of the effort in the province for fishing. Now, and it's my understanding, Adrian, is that a lot of these lakes wouldn't have fish if they didn't get stocked. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Mark. Um, you know, the stocking program has had a, a long and varied history. and uh, But to, today, yeah, we stock a number of lakes that, that obviously wouldn't sustain uh, fish. In fact, the, the preference is to stock lakes that don't have wild fish, uh, the province and the society try to avoid that. We we uh, we try to use um, lakes that that don't have fish, and, and it, when there is a risk of um, fish escaping or being moved, then we then we use sterile fish to to minimize that risk to uh, native stocks. 
Right. That makes sense. I mean, and I know it's part of your guys' mandate to, to basically to improve recreational fishing in British Columbia. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about, and this is a big question, I realize, but how do you go about doing that? Like, where does that start? Does it start in the hatcheries or you tell me? Yeah, I think it's a number of things. So, you know, one of the things that we're working on is to ensure that the fish we're stocking, you know, whether it be the rainbow trout, the kokanee, the eastern bull trout, um, that the fish we're using are, you know, they obviously are going into lakes very healthy and we're matching the right strain and product with the environment and also with the right um, angling angling group. Anglers aren't homogeneous, so we're, we're trying to ensure that we provide appropriate opportunities for the different groups of people on the landscape. Well, and that, you know, I'm coming at it from a fly fishing point of view, but I realize there's so many different uh, ways of fishing, and, and you guys are trying to keep a lot of people happy, as as in uh, those fishing in the province of British Columbia in fresh water. Um, how, I, I'm really curious about how, when you look at a lake, say you're looking at Lake X, and where do you start? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, one of the things about the lake stocking program, so we don't we don't do the stocking prescriptions ourselves. We work with the regional fishers biologists to to come up with with an appropriate stocking prescription, but ultimately it is the government staff that that make the decisions. But yeah, they, what they're trying to do is get a, a mix of lakes on the landscape that that will serve the public's needs. So, you know, a proportion of the lakes they want to be trophy lakes and those are lakes that are typically monoculture or only have rainbow trout in them. They should be productive, you know, have access for people, uh, catch and release regulations, uh, that type of thing where, you know, other lakes, um, maybe having a smaller size fish but a higher density is is more appropriate for, say, families or or people that um, that want to harvest more fish than others do. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. You just said a, a word that I want to explore a little bit because uh, I'm, I just kind of learned about this the other day. Monoculture. Yeah, so monoculture just means there's only one, one um, species of fish in the lake. So, uh, so a good example is uh, one of our one of the lakes that we utilize a lot for our stocking program is Panasque Lake. It's evolved since glaciation, and it's um, it's just it's just a rainbow trout lake. That's all that exists in the lake is our rainbow trout. Now, is my understanding that that's a very unique lake, even on a global scale, as far as it's it, it's always had. And as far as I understand, always will have uh, naturally wild fish in it. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it is. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing resource. I think it's probably one of the province's most important lakes, being that it's, yeah, it's a viable uh, wild population of, of rainbow trout in a monoculture environment. This might be a good a good spot then, uh, Adrian, to get into the strain. So uh, let's start it off with with Panasque, uh rainbow trout. Obviously. Uh, Explain to our listeners some of the traits uh, as far as maybe their feeding habits or, or even uh, their just their tendencies in general. Any thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, Panasca are really interesting. So they're, I think they're kind of the, um, the best stock we have for, you know, fly anglers and, and a lot of our trophy lakes. They do really well, as, as I said, in a monoculture lake. They're, they're not really competitive, so they, they don't do well when there's other species in the lake. They... They're mainly insectivores. Um, like any rainbow trout, they'll be opportunistic um, if necessary, but they, they typically lean uh, more so on the insectivore side. They're extremely great for fly fishing. You know, they're very active. They're aerial aerial fish when you catch them. They have some really interesting life history characteristics. One of them is that even in the hatchery, and so showing that some of these traits are genetic, you know, Panasonic Lake gets really cold in the winter. As, as you know, it's quite high elevation. And um, mm-hmm. so even in the hatchery, they maintain this ability to, to show 
uh, almost no growth. And due to the fact of the, the way they overwinter, they, they don't have a lot of food available. So, yeah, we find this is the only stock we raise in our hatchery that, that don't grow as much over, over the winter time. So it's just an, an interesting little thing about Panas. Hmm. And the, and the one thing is, too, they're just, in my mind, one of the most beautiful fish I've ever seen. They, they're not covered in spots, but they sure have some, some beautiful coloration. Yeah, no, Panasca are a great, a, great, uh, a great fish to be raised. The one, one thing, too, that I really find with them is the, the fight that they put up. It's different than some of the other strains of rainbows that we see in the province. Yeah, they're super aerial. Um, it, it, by, by no question, compared to blackwaters that, that don't tend to jump uh, very often or are Fraser Valley strain they're they're quite an aerial product we do have um two strains that we're looking at right now we're we're evaluating for potential introduction to the stocking program and that's the horsefly river strain that originates um up near quinnell lake and uh the carp lake strain which is uh originates north of prince george and both of those strains do seem to be uh, aerial as well which is exciting hmm so uh, just out of curiosity, are those two strains you just mentioned, are those in the blackwater vein or, or are they um, insect eaters? They're more opportunistic uh, fish. They live in, in more challenging environments. And certainly the horsefly rainbow um, is, a, is, is definitely a, a piscivore. It's, uh, it focuses primarily on kokanee in Quinnell Lake. But they also have an interesting life history where they spend quite a bit of time in the horsefly river. And so they've become quite opportunistic in, in that environment. So yeah, we're working with uh, the Caribou region to to determine their suitability for stocking. When you when you talk about a, a strain like the horsefly river strain, is is that a a rainbow trout that will typically hold in deep water, or will it also come up on the shoals and, and feed? Yeah, I think like I said, they're opportunistic, so they'll certainly feed on the shoals, um, as most rainbow do. I think their feeding behavior depends a lot on lake temperature, lake depth, uh, uh, that type of thing. Okay. What about Dragon Lake? I always hear about Dragon Lake fish. Do you guys stock uh, that strain as well? Well, so Dragon Lake is uh, is our is our main brood lake for blackwater rainbow, and so you know currently okay. we're stocking. Um, uh, sorry, yeah, we're using Dragon Lake as an egg source. So we collect blackwater rainbows from Black, the Blackwater River again in the in the Caribou region, and then there, those progeny are stocked into Dragon Lake as a, as an egg source. And then we're collecting those eggs from Dragon Lake to use in the stocking program. There are um, uh, rainbow trout in Dragon Lake that are reproductive and, and maintaining a population, but we call those um, just native rainbow trout, NRTs. They're essentially a feral population of rainbows that have established based on other rainbows that we've been stocking in the past. In fact, they're quite closely related to blackwater because you know, a lot of the blackwater rainbows are obviously spawning in those creeks. Well, this is where I get a little confused, like blackwater, Panask, Fraser Valley. Like, um, when we say blackwater, are there different types of blackwater? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, not really. The blackwater are, are all collected from the Blackwater River proper, um, okay. the original genetics. Uh, the only difference would be that we stock um, uh, reproductive and non-reproductive fish. And then uh, what about the Fraser Valley strain? Uh, tell us... Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Um, I know a lot more spots and, and maybe different uh, tendencies. Yeah, so one of the things that's unique, well, unique, it's, I think it is unique to the BC stocking program in a lot of ways, is that we mostly use wild-sourced eggs for our stocking program. Uh, the one exception is uh, Fraser Valley Rainbows, which is a domestic stock, which is what most um, fisheries enhancement programs use across North America, are, are domestic stocks. But... They raise at the hatchery. They, we have a, a live brood that we keep at the hatchery year-round. It's actually decades old now, and they're fast-growing. They're super aggressive, 
and we only stock them as a sterile product um, because they are domestic. Yeah, they're um, yeah they're they're not the best fish for experienced anglers that want you know the the fish that jumps and um, hard to catch. They you know they're pretty typically easy to catch due to their boldness and they're not good in lakes where there's a lot of uh, predation from birds because they're not good at um, avoiding predation. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of a lake that we fish, and I know exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. There's a particular bald eagle that likes to take the ones with spots, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Just curious, too, though. So in, in a lake, um, Adrian, that's stocked with maybe both Penasks and Fraser Valleys, so are you coming at that with two different angles, just trying to cover bases for everyone, or is it, are, are some of those kind of more, tri- you know, experiments? Yeah, so this is something that was started by one of the Region 3 biologists who's now retired, and I think uh, his uh, his idea was that trying to provide multiple opportunities in the same in the same lake, you know, and maybe just trying to spread out the different uh, traits that the different strains have. So if yeah, if you have some panask in the lake that are, you know, a little more challenging to catch, they're able to you know avoid avoid capture for longer, maybe get a little bit bigger and nicer. But also uh, having Fraser Valleys in there, for example, for just for the different anglers or the different opportunities that exist. I think it's really important as as fly fishers that we understand when we when we go to these lakes, the strains that are in there, because it's really going to help our success rate, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting for sure to think about what strains are in there. I think, again, though, like, you know, depending on the time of year, most of the fish in the lake are going to be feeding on the same thing. If you're getting, you know, large hatches of chronomids, for example, I think all the rainbow are going to be feeding on them. So I think it's just a different, little bit different when it comes to how aggressive they might be. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I get the feeling that some, like when you start talking about domesticated fish, I don't want to say they're not as intelligent, but they're not, they're, they may be a little easier to catch. Is, would that be accurate? Yeah, they're certainly more bold. Uh, I think we use the term bold, but uh, they, they don't really understand fear. So they're, they're quite, um, yeah, they're a lot more aggressive for sure. What about some of these rainbow trout that in some of the larger lakes like uh, Kootenai Lake, Okanagan Lake, Kalamalka Lake, some of the, the bigger lakes in our province that are kind of uh, special, uh, you know, they've developed over thousands and thousands of years, their tendencies. The plan is to leave those alone, basically, or you tell me, how do, how does that look? Yeah, we don't, we certainly, well, the province and ourselves, we, we don't want to stock on top of uh, wild stocks like that. Um, they, they are interesting fish. Um, Kootenai Lake is a good example where you have the Gerard Rainbow, which are the, the large ecotype, and you also have a number of populations in the lake that are, that are primarily insectivorous, and they're they're a lot smaller, and they seem to manage to to keep themselves uh, separate genetically. So there are some really interesting um, wild populations that we have in the province. Yeah, no, we're we're fortunate. I mean, you think of it, the diversity within the species is quite amazing. And and for me, I when I hit a lake. I really want to know personally ahead of time what I'm fishing for because if I'm fishing for blackwaters, I'm going to look at it a little differently than than I would be if if it's panace. To be quite honest. Yeah, sure. And I think I don't know how many how many people would know this. Um, we try to get the word out, but we do have a really good interactive map on our website. And so, if you identify the lake you want to fish, it, it will outline um, the fish that we stock in the lake to to give you a little bit more information. Can you speak to me a little bit about? how cyclical some of our lakes are because i I mean i i've been fishing since i was a little guy and i I go back and i think you know this lake used to have huge fish in it and then for a while they may be smaller but then every four or five years all of a sudden you go back and wow it's like it's like they're back again tell our listeners a little bit about about how lakes cycle yeah well definitely the productivity of lakes cycle um in a number number of different factors i I think um on the extreme side you get a lake like stump for example where it went through a 
pretty long period of the pH being, you know, too high to really support a good population of, of rainbows, even though, you know, Stump Lake is a super productive lake. It's at times um, due to not enough water, for example, getting into the lake, it can almost get too productive. And then you have uh, the fish not performing as well uh, with high pH. But right now, um, a lake like Stump is actually performing quite well. pH has dropped down enough that the fish are producing. Um, from a productivity side, yeah, I think all lakes cycle. And I think the other aspect that, that we see is that lakes that are performing really well, um, people people know, they see other people fishing, they hear about how great it is. And I think you, you end up having anglers also drive down the quality of a fishery. And then they will move on once that quality goes down a little bit and, you know, allow the lake to recover a little. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate for sure. Um, ideal pH then, so on, on a water system, say, in British Columbia, if you're looking to stock some fish to grow some decent size, what kind of pH are we looking? Well, that's a complicated question, but uh, uh, rainbow trout can tolerate different pHs um, depending on other chemistry um, aspects of the lake. But typically you want a lake that's less than nine uh, on the scale. And okay. our most productive lakes are kind of in the 8.7 to 8.8, 8.9 range for pH. Ooh, that's that's very interesting to me. I, I'm always curious. I never actually have heard that number, but I do know that lakes that tend to be more alkali usually seem to have bigger fish in them. Yeah, they're definitely more more productive. Interesting. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the projects you guys have on the go, if you don't mind. I know you're you're looking to improve all basically recreational fisheries, freshwater wise. Um, removing barriers. How, how do you go about removing barriers to to fishing in British Columbia? So uh, you're talking about social barriers, I assume, or physical barriers? Yeah, just or maybe whether it's access um, or uh, j- just in general. I know part of your mandate I was reading was to remove barriers to fishing to kind of open it up to the to more people. Sure. Yeah, we're doing a number of things, and and of course, when appropriate, there's a lot of lakes where um, or fisheries where we wouldn't want to remove um, barriers. You know, if it's a sensitive population, try to maintain a trophy lake, for example, but. Uh, one of the one of the initiatives that we've been doing is uh, putting docks in lakes that are close to urban centers. So, you know, where catch rates are going to be good and they're suitable for, you know, either kids and families or for, for seniors to to make it easier to access the, the fishery. We're starting to put in boat launches in different locations to try and help facilitate access for people where, where it's uh, been diminished. And we're also trying to get more people interested in fishing with our with programs like our Learn to Fish program and our Rod Loan program. So Learn to Fish program is is put on by our sport fish group. And, you know, they put, I think to date, about 275,000 children and families through uh, a really great program that teaches kids about fishing, you know, the ethics around fishing, you know, takes them fishing, and then also teaches them about conservation. So... You know, just trying to get yeah. a, you know, as we're, as our population is aging with the baby boom generation, trying to get sort of the younger demographic interested in participating in, in the, the sport that we enjoy. How many hatcheries are you guys involved with in the province now? So we have six hatcheries. We have five hatcheries that produce trout and char and kokanee. And then we have our one uh, conservation, uh, surgeon conservation facility in Vanderhoof. Something we haven't talked about is that uh, namely these fish that you're stocking are female fish and maybe you can explain a little bit about how first off how do you know it's a female fish that you're stocking and, and maybe the process involved uh with that sure yeah so we do we do stock a lot of um purely all-female stock 
uh, the advantages of, of this this process are that you, you have a lot of reduced maturation. Males tend to mature a lot earlier than females, and so it, it definitely improves the fishery. Combined with that, you know, we stock so we stock those AF fish that are reproductive, but we also stock the AF sterile fish, and that's just to give, you know, it, it has all the advantages of just an, an AF um, reproductive fish, and that you know you don't have the males dropping out through through maturity because uh, sterile males also mature. But it just adds for the conservation benefit that if we only get 99% sterility, for example, in a in a group of our fish that we stock, uh, we know that the fish are also all female, so it just reduces any chance of um, introgression into the wild population. Well, it's been a long time since I heard somebody say, oh yeah, I was catching a boot, or it was a, it was a colored fish, it was a dark fish that was maybe uh, just uh, going through spawning or, or just post-spawn. You don't hear that much anymore. Probably 50% of our lakes are still receiving um, reproductive fish, and, and those fish are put in environments where where the regional biologists believe the conservation risk is very low. And if it's just a if it's a regional fishery or a family fishery, it's not not as key to have those those sterile fish in, in the lake. Right. So the the female fish, as I understand it, tend to tend to grow larger too, don't they? Well, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I think it depends on the population of fish. They, they tend to delay maturity, so females tend to mature later. So I think that's the, the real advantage in, in rainbow trout. How long does one of these rainbows that you're stocking, like what's its life expectancy? Yeah, so it really depends on a lot of things. In, in regions where there's high effort, like the Kamloops region, we don't see a lot of fish past age of three or four. And that's, about, that's typically about as old as the, the fish will get in a small lake if it's a reproductive animal. Um, but in some of the lakes in the caribou, for example, where fishing effort is much lower, some of our sterile fish, you know, they'll see fish that are seven or eight years old. Wow. I would imagine that's also when you're starting to talk about some, some bigger fish. No, absolutely. And it's also very strain dependent. Like um, one, of the, one of the downsides of our blackwater strain is that they tend to show relatively early maturation. And so the fish are dropping out of the fishery anywhere from two to three years of age, where some of the other stocks, they can have a, a later maturity, you know, anywhere from four to six years of age, which, which certainly has its advantages. Yeah. I, I think every single uh, angler, especially in the province of British Columbia or anybody who visits this amazing province and, and does some fishing, owes you guys a lot of kudos because uh, without what you guys do, I mean, I, I realize a lot of these lakes would be barren. I, I mean, I think it's important too. maybe you can talk a little bit, Adrian, about the fact that when we pay our license fees, they go right back into the fishery, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we're a nonprofit organization, so you know we get we get 100% of the license revenue from, uh, sorry, not license revenue, the license fees. So we get about 70% of all the revenue, and HCCF Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation gets 30% of the revenue as a conservation surcharge fee. So they do a lot of great work investing in fisheries projects, kind of on a on a proposal basis. Right. So yeah, we invest we invest all of our revenue back into the fishery, and when we have years of excess, then then we use that excess to to do cool things like put docks in or you know other different types of projects that we might be able to do. I realize that you have other fish other than rainbow trout uh, between these six hatcheries. Um, what are the other major fish that uh, you guys are uh, raising? Yeah, so I, I think our most exciting uh, uh, fish that we raise. For anglers, is kokanee. Um, certainly for the lake stocking program, kokanee are really, they seem to be catching on as a fish that people really enjoy. And I think the nice thing about kokanee is they kind of fill a niche where the rainbow trout fishery um, isn't, at, isn't as good. So 
you know, kokanee fishing and can be really good in the summertime, and it, it's also really good in the wintertime through the ice. And so I think we're seeing a lot of people that are coming on to fish for kokanee. The other, I think the other thing about kokanee is, it, and it's quite different, is that not a lot of people are going out um, catch and release kokanee fishing. It's more of a harvest fishery, which is great. They're they're great to eat. They're 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 a good fish. It's like they're the freshwater sockeye salmon. So that being said, though, we're seeing we're starting to see a little culture of uh, people targeting them in in the spring. Um, fly fishing, like cronman fishing, et cetera. And from what I understand, I won't name the lakes, but um, they're, I think they're quite a, quite a great fish to get on a fly rod. You know what I think about, like uh, in the case of being in the Okanagan Valley here, I think of Okanagan Lake and, and working back in, in hunting fishing stores a long time ago, there was so much money that came into the, into the, into the shop and into the fishery based on kokanee. You know, it, it went through, I know it went through some tough years there, and I don't want to get into that, but it's, it's, it seems to be bouncing back a little bit with, with the help of uh, all involved. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that it is, it's coming back a little bit. I know there's been a lot of work on Penticton Creek. I know we've invested um, nowhere near as much as some of the other partners, but we have inv- started to invest in some of the habitat work being, being involved there. And um, uh, one of the staff that works with Society, Paul Asky, has been hugely involved in that. So I think, yeah, it's just every opportunity that people can to, to rebuild habitat, to, to put more fish back in lakes like Okanagan will only make the fishery better, more, fishery better in the future. Something we haven't talked about yet that uh, I, think, I think I'd like to, uh, if you don't mind, is, is triploids. Um, I understand now, so we've, ta- we've covered the, you know, the, all f- the AF fish, the all-female fish, but the triploid, maybe explain that process and, and what that means. Sure. So triploids... Um, We've been stocking triploids for, for quite a long time. I think currently we're stocking about 60% of all the fish we stock are, are sterile, are triploid. So a, a triploid fish is essentially uh, a, a, a fish that has three sets of chromosomes instead of uh, our, the normal two sets of chromosomes. Um, and that's induced by uh, pressure shocking uh, during initial stages of egg development after fertilization. And so it's actually an, it's actually a natural process that occurs. It's it's, it's usually under one percent in the in in nature, but we're essentially enhancing that process to to create a completely all sterile a completely sterile population. So what does that? What's the result of that? So essentially, in in females in particular, um, it it significant it eliminates maturation. In triploids, you you reduce or eliminate maturation the maturation processes, so the the hormones involved. And you end up with a sterile fish. They don't tend to be as fast-growing as reproductive fish, or as um, as competitive. And I think that's one of the misnomers out there is that triploids grow faster and they get bigger. They do get bigger typically because they live longer. And the differences are are marginal. I think so. You're not losing a lot of performance from a triploid, but they certainly perform a little bit a little bit less than the than the reproductive fish. But you end up with quite a good product. You know, the fish are the fish don't grow through um, maturity. The all the the female fish, anyways, and you end up with a with a product that's that's much better for anglers. The flesh quality is better. I mean, my, do they pack on more weight in a in a given season? Uh, no, they don't. They tend to be a little bit thinner than a reproductive fish, and again, it's due to that you know slower growth and um, a little bit less competitive nature of, of triploids. They have fewer bigger cells, and so a lot of the physio- physiological processes are marginally compromised. If that makes some sense. Yeah. So what what's a diploid fish? What does that mean? Yeah. So a diploid is just a normal uh, reproductive fish with two sets of chromosomes. Okay. So that's that's like most most fish would be like that. 
I assume. That's right. Yeah, and that's that's the advantage of us stocking the all-female triploid fish is that they're female and they're sterile, and so they what we what we see is uh, fish that don't mature at all. But with our three, with just the, the males, that's the sterile males. Sterile males still do show secondary sex characteristics, and, and they they mature. They're just um, they're still sterile, even though they do develop uh, gonads, etc. Right. It amazes me the amount of science that's involved, and I think the average angler probably probably has no clue what you guys do, and I, I'm, I, I, I'm really fascinated by it, to be quite honest. Can we bounce back into that? Uh, I'm, I'm curious kind of who who's been a big impact in your, kind of in your career as far as with fisheries. I'm sure you've learned from a lot of uh, very knowledgeable people. I have, to be honest. Um, yeah, I've had a number of people in my life. I guess the the first person would be my father. You know, he if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have been as addicted to fish as I was because all I could think about as a kid was fishing, um, which played a, a large role. You know, one of the people I work with, um, he's uh, he's my peer now. He he uh, showed up at River one day where I was a volunteer uh, catching steelhead for the hatchery out on the Sioux River, and uh, at the time I was a commercial fisherman, and I spent the day with him. We caught some steelhead to put in the tanks, bring back to the hatchery. And I reflected on that, that this this person works for the province. He's a steelhead biologist and, you know, he's getting paid to come out and catch fish. <laughs> and I ended up developing quite a good friendship with him. And it just, it, I think it was a, a big turning point in my life where I thought I need to go back to school and uh, do something different. But yeah, I would say, uh, you know, he had a, a big role, Tim, Tim Yasaki. But yeah, that, a lot of people, you know, I worked with a lot of really, really, um, incredible biologists that um, that are constantly looking for better ways to, to manage fisheries and, and to do um, good things in the province. And I think there's too many people to name anybody specifically. <laughs> you talked about your, your background with, with commercial fishing and spending time on the island, so obviously you're very familiar with saltwater fishing. And now you're dealing strictly with freshwater fish, I assume. That must be a bit of a change. Well, it's a change. I always fished um, in freshwater as a kid. You know, I grew up trout fishing. Um, I had bass fishing. You know, as I as I became a teenager, especially when I got my driver's license, I, I was really addicted to steelhead fishing. I was extremely lucky when I went back to university. I got a job um, uh, helping a graduate student that was doing uh, telemetry work on the Maurice River for bull trout because I knew how to run a jet boat and, you know, had basic fishing knowledge, et cetera. Um, I was hired for that position, but essentially, essentially I spent two years uh, on the river um, with her and um, we tagged a, a bunch of fish and it was just such a great opportunity to see a different part of the uh, province that I hadn't spent much time in, the, the Skeena region. Yeah, now I try every opportunity I can. It's been a, I, I got there this, this fall, but it's the first time in a number of times where I actually got out to the the skein at a fly fish for steelhead, but um, I've always been passionate about both. How'd you do? How did we do? <laughs> I didn't really fish that much, um, to be honest. There, there, the, the river was pretty low, so it was more just uh, kind of just being on the water. We didn't take the fishing part um, too seriously. You know, you spent a lot of time on the water, and I'm curious if you've got any crazy fish stories, Adrian, that kind of come to mind that uh, our listeners might find find amusing. Yeah, no, I guess we do for sure. I guess, you know, one of the stories that, um, you know, may be a little bit more aware of uh, how vulnerable some fish can be, and that was when I was um, tagging fish on the Maurice River with um, uh, radio tags, we had caught this fish. It was one of the few fish in the whole study that was deep hooked, so it was, it was bleeding quite profusely, and we held it in the tube for a few hours because we didn't want to release the fish if it, if it was going to suffer mortality. 
because uh, we don't want to lose our radio tag. The fish recovered quite well. You know, it had been captured. Um, we, we released it into a pool and we were still fishing um, to try and tag more fish. And, you know, one cast after we released that individual into the river, um, we caught it. And uh, I think that really opened my eyes that, you know, these fish are super aggressive and bull trout in particular, I think one of the things that I think often they seem super abundant um, to anglers, but I think they're super, they're highly mobile and they're, they're really um, opportunistic and they're very predatory. And yeah, you can seem like a lot of fish in, the, in a certain environment, but you can become really aware how few fish are actually there sometimes. We're chatting today with Adrian Clark, Vice President of Science with the Freshwater Fisheries Society of British Columbia. Um, you just hit on something. You said that we're talking about a fish when it's bleeding. I'm always curious because uh, catch and release is such a huge part of the game now in, in a lot of uh, waterways and water systems. How, how resilient is a trout if, if it is bleeding uh, from being hooked? Like, uh, you know, sometimes I let them go and I'm like, am I just, should I just kill this fish? You know, sometimes that line gets a little blurry for me. Yeah, I think in the literature I've read and, and the studies that my staff have, have completed on catch release angling in lakes in particular, um, the driving factor for mortality really is temperature. So when water temperature, you know, in lakes we find over about 13 degrees, you start to see increased mortality. And that's not to say that all the fish are dying, but it's kind of the um, tipping point where you see uh, fewer fish survive. I think mortality is a bit higher in some of the small lakes uh, with catch and release fishing than it is in rivers where you know, the water's cold, it's highly oxygenated. So I think, in a, for example, some of the sealed fisheries, they see extremely low catch and release mortality. But um, we do see um, in lake fisheries that um, mortality can be higher and due to temperature. Yeah, certainly bleeding when a fish is hooked is, is not good for a fish. But, you know, I think if you take good practice, like if the fish swallow a hook, for example, not to try and get it out, just try to cut it off as close as you can to the to the hook and minimize your handling. Those are kind of the, the best things you can do to, to release fish uh, appropriately. That's really well put because keeping them wet, and like you say, I well, I'm not, I don't hesitate to cut a fly off, but sometimes once in a while, you know, they do get nicked, and I'm just I just wonder can 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 they the, does their blood clot like I mean I, I realize they're cold cold blooded, so I you know I'm a bit naive. I don't know what that means exactly, but oh, certainly if you look yeah. at like my experience fishing in saltwater, um, some of the times where you see like a seal take a chunk out of a fish, it's quite amazing that the fish is able to survive and they have quite healed scars. So. I, yeah, I think it, every situation is different, but fish are pretty hardy. Yeah, certainly the, the less you play with them, keeping them in the water is, is really important if you're going to release a fish. Yeah, try to minimize your too many catching too many fish if the water's warm. Anglers or fly fishers are out, say, chronomid fishing, and they're trying to match the hatch, and I see this happen all the time. Okay, you're going to take a throat sample, and I know there's a proper way to do that. Um, is that a safe practice to do on fish if you're doing it properly? I think it is, and I think again, it's using your discretion as to, to how much you're handling the fish. If the you know water temperature is up, for example, but yeah, I think if you have the fish in the net and you have it upside down and you take a quick throat sample, I think that's I think that's okay. Um, I, I guess you wouldn't want to do it to all your fish. <laughs> no. But, um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's for me. It's I find it interesting. Are, are there certain strains that you stock that maybe aren't as resilient? Oh, that's a good question. I I don't know. Um, I, I think rainbow trout, I think they're, I think for the most part, they're, they're rainbow trout. I think other fish are more susceptible to catch mortality, like kokanee, for example. I think they don't, um, they're not as prone. They don't do as well when you release them. You know, I, I think when you think of the saltwater, people that fish for Chinook or coho, you see that in coho as well. Coho are, don't tend to be as hardy when they, 
when they're released as Chinook. So it's, mm. I think there are species difference for sure. Right. Uh, I got to do a bit of a 360 on you. And uh, this, have you guys stocked bass ever in the province, or is, is that going back a long, long way? Yeah, so certainly we, as in Freshwater Fishery Society, have never stocked bass. Um, the government has stocked bass, um, mostly around the turn of the century, the, the early 1900s. Um, that was the federal government at the time. I don't know all the specific details. It was a, I know there's a few lakes on the island that were stocked, and I don't really know the rationale for that either. But no, currently there's absolutely no stocking of bass in the province. Are you involved with the sturgeon uh, grow and release program at all? Uh, yeah, so we we operate the facility on the Nishako that releases sturgeon into the Nishako River, and we've also for for quite a long time have been running uh, the sturgeon program on the Columbia River for the for the Upper Columbia. Uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that I'm missing here? I'm sure there's a lot, but um, that that you might want to get into. Yeah, well, I guess um, I guess one of the things that if your listeners don't aren't aware of, we have a, a huge amount of information on our website, and and the website would be well to do a much better job than I would of explaining a lot of things I've talked about. But you know anything from our the science programs we have, and we have a blog series, and some of the you know the, the work we do around providing access for fisheries, and just general information about the society. Um, there's some really good blog posts on the website if people are interested in going to. Uh, GoFishBC.com. I got to confess, I went through that uh, today before I started chatting with you, and a lot of the questions I was going to ask you were there in black and white, and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I better rethink this. But uh, yeah, there, you're right. There's some really, really interesting stuff, and I think as far as on the strains and whatnot, there's some really good literature on your website regarding that. No, there really is. We have we have really great staff at the society, and um, some of the research that they're doing is fantastic. You know, our, our hatchery staff are, are great. They take their jobs very seriously. They're always doing their very best to uh, to raise the, the fish they can. One of the things we didn't talk about was our fish health lab. So we have our own fish health lab that does, you know, we test all of our fish before stocking to ensure they're healthy uh, before release. Uh, we do a lot of work for the province with our fish health lab. Is that, yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. So is that is that on in Victoria or where, where is this lab? Yeah, no, our fish health lab is located at our, our, our Vancouver Island Road Hatchery, which is located in Duncan. I got another weird question for you. Um, w- when these lakes get stocked, I'm sure that's quite a process in itself. You're getting into some some pretty rough terrain in cases. Some places aren't even accessible by road. How how, how do those fish get in those lakes? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Our, it's and again, it shows the commitment to us from our staff. Uh, you know, a lot of the lakes are hiking lakes, and you know, in the past we used um, there was a lot of helicopter stocking that would go on, and, and there still is some helicopter stocking, but we're trying to reduce it wherever we can. But yeah, our staff will drive as close as they can to the lake, and then they backpack the fish in. So. Um, trying to you know you know save save the resources that we have from a you know just using our using our financial resources appropriately, but also just the, just using helicopters is um, for a number of different reasons probably not the best approach. But yeah, so we do that. Is is it really satisfying from your guys' point of view when that when that hatchery truck is loaded up and it kind of pulls away and you say there go the babies, you know? Oh yeah, I think the the, the staff that work the hatcheries there they they certainly get very attached to the. The fish that they stock, they put a lot of time and and love into those fish. So I think uh, it's always nice to see them go to the lake and 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 survive well. I'm gonna ask you a funny question and tell me if you've ever heard of this before, because I had never heard of it. I was at a at a Christmas function the other night talking to a gentleman, and he was telling me he was up the Adams River and he was uh, you know in the lake though uh, in uh, fishing for for rainbows, and he said he witnessed. Um, these big sockeye and these 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 decent sized rainbows would come flying in and slam them in the belly 
to knock eggs out. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've heard of other someone is doing that, but no, I not specifically rainbows on sockeye, but I guess in some ways it makes some sense. But yeah, I guess you always hope that fish are more benign than that. But Yeah, I, I thought, well, you know what? That, that There's something that would speak to fish that have been living in this water body, you know, historically for thousands and thousands of years. Maybe that's a tendency that they've developed. Say, hey, okay, if we're hungry, just, just let's bump into this fish. I, yeah. I, I thought yeah, that boggled my mind. Yeah, no, that's re- it's really interesting for sure. I, I think... Uh, it's a fine line I'm sure we walk between keeping the wild fish that we have uh, wild and and complementing those fisheries that um, you know can be can be improved with with domestic uh, strains. You got any new investments on the go that you want to touch on? Yeah, well, so you know a lot, a lot of things that we're doing uh, investing in are to benefit try to benefit anglers on the in the resource and you know try and uh, maintain the angling base that we have. We, we, we really like, uh, we, we really like to keep the numbers uh, close to where, where they're at. We, we currently have around 365,000 licensed anglers in the province, which is certainly down from the 1990s, but um, you know, over time we'd like to keep um, more kids fishing. So, you know, programs like our, our dock programs and boat launches and uh, learn to fish mm-hmm. rod loan, those are all really important projects for that. Well, I was just going to say that's something that we do talk a bit about on the program and that if, if there's not that group of people coming up behind, uh, you know, conservation is going to suffer. The, the funds, the available resources suffer. What, I wonder why. You, you just hit on something that I find interesting. Back in the 90s, there, there was a big fishing was, was hot. And I, it, it feels to me a little bit like it's coming back. But 365,000 anglers, that's not as big a number as I, I would have hoped. Yeah, we believe the population of anglers is um, almost twice that size when you look at some of the data associated with, with anglers. Um, but a lot of people don't buy fishing licenses every year. And so you end up with, you know, a, a core group of people that buy their licenses every year and, and a number of people that only buy their licenses, you know, every second, third or fourth year. And so how that's compared to the 1990s, I don't think we know. But what we do see is that that when you look through the license data over time, that that demographic of the current baby boomers was always kind of a large group of people, even as, as young, as young people in their twenties and thirties. Um, so that, that they're kind of moving through time and we're having less people today, uh, kind of picking up that slack. Is there a lot of urban initiatives? Like, you know, like say in the city, um, you know, some of the, some of the little ponds and whatnot that, that people have access to kind of get, I mean, getting roots developed that way in an urban at, um, setting. Yeah, we started a really cool program kind of in the mid 2000s. I would say, I would say around 2006, 2007, called Fishing in the City, and essentially we really tried to uh, improve fishing in a number of communities. You know, mainly in the Lower Mainland, but in other areas as well. But trying to make the fisheries worth going to, and and we found it's very successful. There's lakes all over the Lower Mainland where where we stock catchable rainbow trout, and they tend to have fishing docks, and they're highly subscribed. Um, one of the issues is that there's just so many, only so many lakes or ponds to stock, and so, you know, we're kind of tapped out for, for to, you know, to give those uh, urban, urban um, individuals uh, more opportunities, especially in places like Vancouver. Uh, it's more challenging. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, but I could also see where you got the most people. You probably got the the most room to grow the sport. Yeah, the the, the population is certainly centered in places like. Um, like Vancouver, um, in those areas. And what, what we originally thought was these you know, fishing the city programs would kind of get people introduced to fishing. And then maybe they'd be more willing to travel to places like Merritt or Kamloops or the Caribou 
to go fishing, but it, it does seem like a, that, that that does happen to a small extent. But a lot of the people that are, are, are that we see as our urban angler, they tend not to want to travel far from home, and so we're creating a, a fishery for them. But that's that's almost satisfying their needs. So I think we were we right. we didn't yeah we didn't really understand that when we started uh, developing those fisheries. So a fishery like you're just talking about, like in the city, that's maybe. Uh... You know, you want to grow some, some some fish fast. What kind of strain would you put in there normally? Yeah, all the fishing in the city lakes get sterile fish, and they're they're all uh, Fraser Valley rainbows. Yeah, makes sense. They grow fast, and uh, and and they're not, you know, they're not as hard as some strains to catch for sure. That's right. It just amazes me the amount of thought, the amount of science that goes into something we take for granted every day. And I think about <laughs> when I buy my license every year, I got what I'm thinking. What else can you do for 12 months a year for that little money? You no, know, I, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, going fishing, the, the buying license portion is, is quite affordable. Uh, depending on how avid of an angler you are, it can be quite an expensive sport. But uh, certainly buying a license compared to other, other things that we see people do, like golf, for example, it's amazingly cheap. Yeah, I just, uh, it's, it's amazing. Well, hey, listen, I, I, I want to thank you for your time today. We've been chatting with Adrian Clark, Vice President of Science with the Freshwater Fisheries Society of British Columbia. These are the guys that, well, grow these fish, determine where we're going to spend our, you know, our resources and just basically making angling better in the province of British Columbia. Thanks for everything you guys do, Adrian. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for your time, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.